Hey there, welcome back to this week's show of Beyond the Front Page with the East Aurora Advertiser. I'm Amanda. I'm Adam. I'm Chris. And I'm Shelly. Thanks for stopping back and listening. Again, our show each week is on iTunes and on our website. Uh, leave us a review and tell us what you're thinking about it. Some of our topics for this week include... I'm going to be talking about the new book that I'm reading, The Outsider by Stephen King. I'm going to focus on why your name is not in the police blotter, and if it is, we'll explain the reasons why. I'll be talking about finding joy in failure. Uh, Rob Gollard, Town and Village Historian, he'll be returning. I've been spending some time this past week speaking with business owners who are neighbors with the railway and how they have dealt with the railway not really keeping up with the property over the years. We've got a lot to cover, but first, books. What do we like to read? Well, I like to read anything by Stephen King and John Sanford. And Stephen Those King's just released a new book? Yes, The Outsider. I got it on Saturday, and I can't put it down. I don't even like being here right now. I want to go home and read my book. <laughs> What's the book about? Uh, it's about some... Well, it's kind of... It's dark, of course, because it's Stephen King. Um, but there was a murder. Now they're trying to solve the murder. Are you scared? Pretty... Like, while you're reading it, do you get scared? Not yet. I usually... The Sanford books scare me when I read those. And Stephen King, some of them do, but this one's more... I don't know, it's, it's not as scary yet. I've never read a Stephen King book. <gasps> Same here. Oh, really? It's one of my really? favorites. Yeah. I like the movies. I think I have every Stephen King book there is. So if you want to come and look through my bookshelves or the boxes in my basement or my closet. It's such a commitment. They're like, I they're know. so thick. I know. Now, the Stephen King book, how does it compare to some of his past work? I'm not terribly far into it because every time somebody in the house sees me sit down with a book, they find a reason to come up and... Uh... <laughs> it's kind of like when you have the phone up to your ear. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm about three or four chapters into it. It's really good. I like it a lot. Do you prefer things that scare you? Like, do you like scary movies and thrill, like, rides? I don't like days? scary rides. I do like scary movies. I don't like gory movies, mm -hmm. but I like scary movies. But you like The Walking Dead. That's I gory. I love The Walking Dead. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, mm. that's the ultimate gore. It's yeah. That's like scratch out your eyeballs gore. <laughs> I think and then that eat them. <laughs> I, um, I don't like to watch scary things at night. I will save scary things for during the day. Do you um, think that books are scarier or movies are scarier? Hmm. I think movies are scarier, with the exception of, there's one John Sanford book called Ice Prey, which was, no, I'm sorry, Winter Prey, which was one of the scariest books I've ever read. Of course, I was reading it in a tent in the middle of the woods by flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> was this and last I, week? <laughs> <laughs> no. It, that one scared me the most. Did you finish that book? I did, but not that night. <laughs> what, was, what made it scary? Like, what's, because to create that atmosphere in a book, an author has to be hit in certain points. What was scary about it for you? Well, because it was someone sneaking up on someone who was outside to mm. murder them. I was outside by myself in the pitch dark in a tent in the middle of the woods. And I kept hearing things outside the mm -hmm. tent. What's the face for? <laughs> You're just in the woods by yourself in a tent? There were other people down by the fire, but I really wanted oh, to read my okay. book. You were camping with people. Yes. So what else? Any other books you're reading? Um, I did finish the newest, um, well, let's see, I just finished Dr. Sleep by Stephen King last week, and before that, I just bought the new John Sanford book, which was Twisted Prey, and I finished that one the week before. So I'm hoping if I can get some time this weekend, I can burn through the Stephen King book. If you could see my bookshelf, it's packed full, 
And every time I finish one book, I go over there and I sit down and I figure out what I'm going to read next. And nine times out of ten, it's going to be a Sanford. You know, a good Stephen King book for those who aren't uh, interested in the horror aspect is his, it's kind of like an autobiography on writing. Have you read that? No. Nope. Uh, it's uh, really good. It talks about his writing method, his process, his struggles with writing. Yeah, I think it's just one of those recommended books you should have for people who are interested in writing of any sort. Is it that thick? No, no. No, it is not. It is not a five-inch thick book. It's probably maybe 200 pages or something. That's manageable. Doctor yeah. Sleep was I was over 500, and this one I have now is about 567. That is a commitment now. Yeah, it is. I've got my lawn chair out all the time. And I have my beverage mm -hmm. chilling in the fridge for when I get home. So I'm ready to go. Anyone else reading a book this summer? I read Civil War Land and Bad Decline by George Saunders. Are you familiar with George Saunders? No, I'm not. I think you would really like him. He's very twisted, but not in a super <laughs> scary way. Of course, Chris would be twisted. <laughs> no, but it's so good. And he writes about from many, many different perspectives. But he's George just Saunders? Guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. -E That's Excellent. why I don't really know how to pronounce it. But it's super, super good. Highly recommend. All right. That'll be my next one. Shelly, read anything? <laughs> um, I'm waiting for recommendations. <laughs> Come to my house and go through my bookshelf. I'm Seriously. a periodical reader. I love magazines. I love my newspapers, but I don't, don't so much pick enough. up. Well, that's mm -hmm. that's why I prefer to read those. I think. When she Shelley's in between uh, wallpapering and painting. Right, I'm on magazine. my feet. Yeah. I'm on my feet. I don't often settle into no, to read me. very often. Yeah. Well, while a lot of these books that Chris likes to read deal with murder and intrigue that might get you in the police blotter. I thought, you know, this episode we might chat a little about the East Aurora Advertiser's uh, police blotter that we have. And I guess we, the whole thought was, to begin with, we'll kind of explain a little how we run our police blotter. And I'm hoping people in the end, after they're done listening to us, will give us a call or write to us and talk about what they want from us as far as what we do with the blotter. And we'll kind of see where it goes. We just want feedback. Do we have any idea how long we've been writing the police blotter? Ooh, if you think about news, news has been covering incidents and accidents since it began. Right. You go back in the old advertisers, and the advertisers from 1872, you go back to those early days, it's talking about fire burning, a place down, police catching someone, an accident. So the police blotter in some fashion has been ongoing for a while. Right. So each week I go down to the East Aurora Police Station over on Maine and Payne. I ask them for the police blotter. Uh, this is a collection of more major incidents they have. It includes larcenies, it includes DWIs, um, domestic disputes, and I go through it. I'll pick out some that seem significant that people might want to know about. Uh, we have sometimes when cars are being broken into in a certain area, we try to get that out there, a lost and found. We don't have a ton of major incidents in East Aurora. You see a lot of the DWIs. A lot of marijuana possession. A lot of marijuana possession. You see, you know, some drunken disorderly things, but nothing too wild. So the way I look at it is big highlights of what's going on, let people know to educate our readers, to let them know kind of what the police department has been up to. And it to. can be a tool for readers so that they know what's going on in the neighborhood. Right. You want people to be looking around uh, just if they see something that maybe the police don't recognize and it's a 
something, a crime, maybe someone's like, oh, I did see something that was out of order. I should, you know, just give them a quick call. Or maybe I found a bike in the road and it's got to be returned. It's sometimes just very simple things. But, but uh, no names. So, yes, that is a big thing we get asked a lot why we don't have names or when there are names why it's in there right because every once in a while we do print somebody's name right yeah so the policy has been going on for a long time where we do not include names we do include some descriptors of the person we'll say a 46 year old male from oakwood avenue right there have been times though where you might notice where we don't list someone and i'm just picking a random street on calver court we might not list the exact name or um gender because you can easily identify that. I think the idea of putting, in general, putting an age and a gender can help people just kind of think, oh, here's someone out there. This is kind of what happened. The, the policy of not including names started a long time ago. Um, unless there is, unless the person's been charged with a felony or as a newspaper, we look at it and we think it's a serious issue and people should know a name such as maybe a public official, feel the name should be out there. We are simply going by what the police have gathered. We haven't talked to the suspects or the subjects or the victims. We don't even talk to the police officers. We just look at the report. For the most part, yeah. If there's some, if I have questions on something, I'll talk to maybe the lieutenants or the police chief or the dispatch and ask them what happened in this report. Give me some background so that when I do present it to our readers, they have a better idea of what happened. Now with the DWIs, a felony for a DWI would be if you have more than one. Yes, if you've been convicted, so it's not just that you were charged with one, you were actually convicted of having a DWI in the last 10 years, that can be a felony charge. Um, there's Leandra's Law, which mm -hmm. is if you have someone, I think, under the age of 16 in the car and you are charged with a DWI, it automatically becomes a felony. That was put into a place maybe two, three years ago, I think. So there's some situations where a felony charge is out there, and I guess because it is more of a serious offense, that's something the paper has looked at as why names are included. We do have a lot of readers that would like to see names included. Yeah, and and that's always, that's a debate we probably have every couple months. Mm -hmm. We have people who say, uh, why aren't you including names? Or we've, and we've had the opposite too. Why did we include someone's name? And it goes back to the main reason of how we gather this. This is coming from the East Aurora Police Department. So we are using their documents to tell our readers what the police is kind of up to, what the police department is up to around the village. So they don't really, the police department, have they ever commented on using names or not using names? Uh, we've talked to them in the past about certain situations. Some uh, times when they have a blotter that they mark is not for press because mm -hmm. it's, it might involve a juvenile or it's an ongoing investigation. In those cases, I'll be talking to the police, discuss where it's at so that we can get it out there for the readers. Police gather this information. We're not following up with the courts as far as what the charges were. Sometimes they're dropped. Right. Nobody's been proven guilty yet. Yeah, we're at a very early stage. And so it's difficult. And I think I've always felt that way when, I, when I'm writing them. I, we're not trying to be gossip mongers in this situation. It's simply to let people know, hey, these are incidents going around the village. The police force, we're paying for them with our tax dollars, and we just want to know what they're up to. Maybe if we see some concerns, we don't think they're doing it enough, or then we can say, hey, they are doing enough. That can go either way. Mm -hmm. And for everybody who might not understand why the names aren't in there, there might be a day where they're grateful that the names aren't in there because it might actually be them. You know, it's different in different papers, this policy. The Arcade Herald, a sister paper to us, they actually include names. Um, going back to what you said, Shelley, sometimes people might be grateful to not have their names in there. I remember a former editor at the Arcade 
paper told me her son was actually in the blotter for a, you know, a small misdemeanor incident. And she was completely fine with it because mm-hmm. she's like, our policy is the name goes in there. Yep. And it's just that the advertiser and Elmer Review policy is names do not go in there. Well, hopefully people can understand that because we do get a lot of angry people calling up and asking, why don't you put the names in? Mm-hmm. Hmm. What I'm wondering, you know, from the rest of you, what do you think? Do, is that something we should look at changing? Or are there things in the police bar we should look at adjusting? I know I was talking to uh, our vice president, Sandy Cunningham, about maybe adding some figures that the department has to let people know more on domestic disputes or not necessarily putting names or where these took place, but to let people know these are happening. Yeah, like what kind of figures? Like how often it happens, how often the police, within the month they responded to 15 domestic disputes. Maybe that's something Mm -hmm. we put in the paper just to be like, East Aurora isn't, we joke about it being in a bubble, there are problems and people need to be aware of it. I would say that kind of stuff, maybe just the numbers and that's it, not any other information because... Right, 15 domestic disputes, three overdoses. Our goal, again, isn't this gossip aspect. Yeah. look at your neighbor but I I guess you know from the other side of it people want to know you kind of want to know what your neighbor's up to in case you have to worry in some way it's true and that's why I agree with the number you know the listing sounds perfect Mm -hmm. but I would leave it at that so I guess we'll be uh yeah give us let us know what you think let us know your thoughts should the blotter change in some way is it pretty good in that current fashion we're always looking for comments. And I was talking to Town and Village historian Robert Gowler about this, and he was showing me some things from old advertisers where the paper pretty much printed everything, especially in an obituary, where if someone died of an overdose or if it was suicide, those things were reported upon. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it, it didn't hide it. We know these things are personal, but at the same time, if people aren't talking about it in our community, maybe we might just not realize there's a problem. And so I think that's where we're looking at it, um, why some of the discussion was, what can we do different in the police blotter? Because maybe if people are looking at these figures, seeing different crimes that they didn't realize are actually happening, it can open their eyes and maybe someone can get help. And that's the key point. So if someone realizes, oh, there are, tr- there are people out there going through a similar problem, maybe I can get help. Right. There are things that people just don't see happening. I hope one thing we don't see in the police water coming up soon is some graffiti on the bridges. Yes, and that will be a topic we're going to be... We'll move on. Yeah, the police water. (laughs) Serious topic. Give us a call. Um, We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to run off and meet up with town and village historian Robert Galler. We're going to chat about how Hamlin Park was formed nearly over 100 years ago. So stay tuned. You want the truth? Well, this is how it is. I know it hurts, but... Welcome back to the Beyond the Front Page with the Easter Advertiser. We are lucky again to have town and village historian Robert Goller back for another feature about our region's history. This week we're going to talk about Hamlin Park. It's a big feature of the village. It's something a lot of people have enjoyed. It's held a lot of events over the years. And I want to ask you, Rob, you, you grew up near the park. What's the memories you have from growing up there? It, what's really wonderful is, it was funny, because I grew up on Prospect, and it was we only had to cross one street, South Grove, to get to the park. So... I think our parents didn't really care that they felt safe <laughs> having us be able to just at a certain age go down to the park but it's just even today you know I live a block from the park on the opposite end wonderful to have this park in 
in our village here. And I remember there was rec department programs. One of the biggest things I remember is back in those days, um, they would have this, we called it the shack, which I don't think they technically called it, but it was the uh, rec depart recreation department's program down at Hanlon Park. You could play basketball, you could do crafts, there were all sorts of things that you could do in the park, but one of the things they had was stilts. You could walk around on these stilts. Um, they would line them up against the shack. And you did this? And I did this. And they had different size stilts, so you could stilt walk. I'm sure today the liability would be just nuts, but uh, but yeah, you would just go down there and you would They'd bring the stilts out and line them up along the side of the shack, and you'd walk around, you know, taller than everyone else. Um, <laughs> and it's and of course there were crafts, and you could play uh, capture the flag in the park. And you know, there's still programs there, but that's what I remember. Did it feel like a backyard park. to you? In a way, yeah. And going to see my brother's baseball games there, he probably, you know, both my brothers played baseball. You could just walk down to the park or ride your bike to it because it literally was centrally located in the village. And like, you know, there are a lot of events there and I think it's a good problem to have when you're you know the the, the park gets used quite a bit and of mm -hmm. course when you use something quite a bit there are a lot of issues that arise if the, the grass and all that sort of thing but I think that's a good problem that you know that park is such a great feature that everyone wants to use it sure and you know as we bring you we bring you on the show to enlighten us on the historical aspects of our community how did Hamlin Park become Hamlin Park you wrote a column about this for us in the Easter Advertiser in your historicals column, your historian's column back in 2015. Illuminate. Sure. Um, I am absolutely fascinated by Hamlin Park's story because it's it's very unique, and the park we have today is a direct result of Mr. Hamlin. And it, it's sort of a roundabout, not just Mr. Hamlin, actually. It's a, a series of folks and a series of things that happened over time that allowed us to have this fantastic park. When I first started researching it, I called it, it's like East Aurora Central Park. <laughs> then come to find out that wasn't really my idea. I found an old article that referred to it as the Central Park of East Aurora. But what ended up happening is when East Aurora was settled, first settled, the when they were selling lots of land and things, they would, they cleared the trees out. They would, and similar to what they do today when you have a housing development. They'll clear the trees, build the homes, build the streets, and then put new trees in around. So what ended up happening is for whatever reason, this block of this grove in the middle of, of the village remained. There, the trees remained as they were. And People just weren't cutting it down. They, they weren't cut there. down. And I have a, when, look, when you look at the, um, the land deeds, there was a Mr. Holmes who purchased this land and owned this land. And actually, which is even more interesting. So that whole area, actually from Main Street all the way down, if you take today's South Grove Street, that area was all covered in trees. And then south of present day Hamlin Park, about the baseball diamond of further south, was an orchard of several thousand apple trees. And we have the maps that show it. There's actually a map that says or apple orchard 1,000 trees. Really? And, yeah, an 1880 map. And to imagine what that would have been like because today we have houses and streets and mm -hmm. all that in that area. So first, Mr. Holmes had this whole area. The trees were just there. It was a park, a grove by accident. Like he didn't set out. The Holmes family didn't set out and say this shall be a park. But people started to picnic there, and there's actually stories of you go picnic on a bed of violets. You know, the the, the ground would be colored covered in violet flowers and these tall trees. 
and it was a perfect picnic spot that that area no, that we still call the Grove today and it was known as Holmes Grove and he just let people come and picnic and hang out and there's actually articles when, when I was doing my research there were articles in there talking about how it was sort of a understanding you know there was no legal problem uh, you know nobody talked about that you know you just would go they would have church picnics would be held there in the late 1800s and it was called Holmes Grove uh, but it was privately owned it wasn't a public park but nobody really said anything it was just a wooded area in the middle of the village so it, it definitely became a part of the community the, even though it's private and then that kind of created a mindset where people wanted it protected correct correct and actually when Holmes um, long series of events but essentially Holmes no longer you know the family passes away it becomes part of the estate there were some issues there and it and there was some concern toward the turn of the century late 1800s that we were going to lose use of this grove because there was no private agreement there was no agreement with the owners so if it got sold uh, to somebody else who did not want to allow it to be used as a park there would be a problem um, in fact the one person that had purchased some of it had offered to give the village land in exchange for not having to pay taxes for the rest of his life, I think, or 50 years or something. Well, the village was like, we can't agree to that. So there are a lot of strings attached to some of these offers. Had there been any potential of development at that time that people were going to buy it? <laughs> There's an, a 1909 map, and we're still trying to figure this out, that shows one of the interesting things. If you look at a map of East Aurora today, there's Park Place on the north side of the park, mm -hmm. and there's South Park Place on the south side of the park. Those were originally meant to connect, and there's actually a map showing building lots going through Hamlin Park, uh, and that was part of the plan, that that road would go right through. So there definitely was there something. There definitely was pressure. There was a company called the East Royal Land and Improvement Company in the late 1800s, so roads like Sycamore, Linden, all were developed by this land company. Just like a modern developer, they would you know, buy big chunks of land, divide them up into building lots, you'd pick your house and you'd build on it. So there was definitely in the 1880s, 1890s, this pressure on that growth. In 1899, people were really significantly worried. The village was actually significantly worried about it because uh, they wanted a village park and they, mm -hmm. and they thought that would be the perfect place to put it. And actually by that point, you had you actually today's Hamlin Park is actually in three different sections so the Grove was one section so the Grove would be located where north of the drive parking lot or the driveway that goes into the baseball diamond okay right there so right, and where prospect. the trees are yeah, yeah. right where, <laughs> where the Rycroft Pavilion is, is. that's the Grove second part is the baseball diamond area the athletic fields they call it and the third is toward Griggs Place they, uh, the tennis courts to Griggs Place that was purchased later so the original Hamlin Park was not, did not include that Griggs Place portion. What happened is in 1899, a group of people in the village got together. They had said, well, the owners of this property have allowed us to use it, but we're not sure we're going to be able to use it much further. So they petitioned the village to purchase. Now, we've been playing baseball on the baseball diamond for a couple decades, and the baseball diamond was there at the time, but it was, again, privately owned. So what they did is they, the, these villagers went to the village and said, you know, we need to make an offer. We need to purchase this. So they actually held a public vote to go out and borrow money and purchase Holmes Grove and the athletic facility, the baseball diamond. And they held a vote. They had several different questions. One of them was actually three different questions. One was, do we buy the Grove? Do we buy the athletic facility, uh, the baseball diamond? 
or do we buy both of them at the same time? And so, of course, if they voted yes on buying both, the other two questions became moot. So what they did is the village um, overwhelmingly voted to purchase both, to borrow $7,000, which today would be a, probably about a quarter million dollars, I think we've calculated. Well, so that was all set. The village was ready to go borrow the money. They're getting the paperwork set. The vote has happened. The vote the has happened. We've got a park. Exactly. And they did this very quickly. You know, they, this is 1899, summer of 1899. And they they put the propositions on the ballot within weeks. They had voted. Within a couple days, they had bought, they gotten the paperwork together to, to, to borrow the money. And then all of a sudden they hear that the owner sold the land before all the paperwork was finalized. Which sold the land? Sold the land. So could you imagine, you've gone through all this in the village, these village residents trying to save this park, this land, and to find out after we got everything settled, we voted, we got the money in line, that someone bought it from underneath them. And now, there's no spoiler here. Clearly we have Hamlin Park, so something <laughs> something good happened. But, you know, at the time, I'm sure these people are... Could you imagine being devastated? Yeah, you, you, you've, you've fought so hard to get this place that you've considered a part of the public good. You even voted on it. You yep. held the vote, like you said. And, and then someone came in with a better offer and bought it. But, as I said, it's not a spoiler. No. Rob, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> so what ended up happening, actually, um, Cicero Hamlin, he actually ran the village farm. What's he, the village farm? The village farm was the current land, um, the neighborhoods of Hamlin Avenue and North Willow, all the way to the village line. So from Main Street all the way to the village all the way till you get to the hill um, at the edge of the, the northern edge of the village was what they called the village farm. And it was Cicero Hamlin started this farm and it was a breeding, horse breeding farm. There was a racetrack there and he bred these championship horses including, you maybe you've heard of him before, Mambrino King. Yes, I, I believe I have heard yes. of him. <laughs> <laughs> and Mambrino King actually was a stud, was not a racehorse, was a stud. And people from all over the world, and we're not kidding, when we say that, brought their female horses to East Aurora to breed with Mambrino to produce championship horses. And you'll hear about this about Triple Crown winners today, where they were they once they retire from racing, they are put out to stud and to produce new champion horses. And Mambrino was considered this the handsomest horse in the world. That's what someone said about him. And he really was. He was a, a very tall horse, very good looking horse and did produce these championship racehorses. So Hamlin had this farm. And 1899, a few years later, he had actually retired and closed the farm. But he didn't live in Easter anymore. He had this farm here. Um, he had since moved to Buffalo. Um, there's a Hamlin Park neighborhood in Buffalo. And he had heard that the village was purchasing this land for the park. He got wind of it, and he's the one that came along and bought it from underneath the underneath the village. Do we know why he did it in that manner? I don't know why. Well, I think he did it. He was a smart businessman, obviously. And I think he just went in and, you know what, I don't know how much he paid for it, but I bet you he came in and offered enough money to make it a done deal right mm -hmm. away. Um, didn't want any, any problems. And the, Mr. Hamlin was considered the richest man in New York State outside of New York City. He was very wealthy, so he had the ability to offer whatever whatever the landowner wanted. So I think that's more what he was thinking. He probably I don't know if he did it on purpose. I think he just literally wanted it to be done. You you mentioned in your your column about how Cicero Hamlin was kind of looking that this is his way to give back to East Aurora. 
Yeah, he actually said, he wrote this very nice letter, it's actually in the advertiser uh, at the time, to the village and said, you know, you, the village has been so good to me. And he, again, was the richest man outside of New York <laughs> City. I don't know if that's true. I've read that about him. Uh, but if you think about this nice little small village, and he was bringing thousands of people from around the world, literally probably on the train and walking the horse to the farm, it, it was a disruption probably to the community. And the, But the community supported his efforts and he he without the support of East Aurora he would not have been the, the success he was so he actually says and it's a really nice letter that he wrote to the village saying he wanted to do something of public good for the community that was so good to him and what better way than to you know leave a, a park that the village really desperately wanted and was really seriously um, concerned about losing and so he presented it to the to the village he did have a stipulation or two, though. He did, and this was, in my opinion, in, and I'm not a lawyer, but to me, it's legal ingenious. <laughs> <laughs> he put a deed restriction on the park to say the village must always maintain it as a public park for everyone. For instance, the, uh, a few a decades, I don't know how long much later, but there used to be a big grandstand that the Roycrofters built to watch the baseball games. Well, they they were charging admission to get on to go on the grandstand. Still doing it a few years after the park was there, and the village actually stepped in and said, "Nope, this is not in the spirit of Ham Mr. Hamlin. There shall be no charging for admission to that grandstand. That everyone should be able to you know have advantage of that park. Not you shouldn't. There should be no admittance to the park. He wanted it to be the people's park." And he put that as a restriction that it will shall always have be for recreation and leisure activities. So the village is actually not allowed to use it for any other purpose, sell it, and they must spend $100 a year on maintaining the park. And if they don't meet those restrictions, the park land goes back to his heirs. Do you know of any heirs? I don't know specifically. I'm almost certain there's some still around. Sure. Yeah, it would be uh, an interesting idea to then, it would be a surprise to see someone come out and be like, hey, you haven't right. done anything. But what's, I think it's a lesson to say he was concerned so much about that. Now, mind you, he was smart. He probably had attorneys. You know, he knew what he was doing to make sure that the park could never be sold for another purpose. Housing development could never come in. A couple years, or a couple decades after the park was gifted, there was an article in the advertiser about how the village was maintaining the park, adding recreational facilities in that spirit. So they were still talking about Mr. Hamlin years later after he after he died. He died of, uh, within a year of his donation, I believe. It, they're still talking about that. And even today, you'll see restrictions that are put on the park by village by the village. Not necessarily by Mr. Hamlin, but by the village later in order to keep that spirit alive. For instance, that the park you know, shall, shall be open to all. There will not be an event in the park where there's, you know, a gate and an admission fee, that there's, today, there's, no, there's no gambling in the park. Actually, for, I don't know if it's still in the books, I'm pretty sure it is, I haven't heard otherwise, there's no alcohol, there's no sale of alcohol Correct. in the park. Um, actually, years ago, when there was a carnival and there was a beer tent, the beer tent was actually on the side beyond the, the tennis courts, and I had always heard that that was because that wasn't part of Mr. Hamlin's gift. That was an addition to the park later. He didn't necessarily put these restrictions on, but the village added restrictions to the use of the park in the spirit that he, you know, he 
wanted it to be a community gathering place. And you think about it, you know, I can imagine when he's thinking to, you know, looking down on it, the park, that there's still families enjoying it, there's still baseball games going on, that his vision almost 120 years later is still happening in the middle of our community. Hamlin Park's just been the place we gather, we celebrate the 4th of July there, 3rd of July here in the community, but after September 11th in 2001, the community gathered there, that's where we gathered to, to mourn and to reflect on that. It, it's just a gr- it's a meeting place that's just it's been a wonderful meeting place for our community and for families together and I think Mr. Hamlin would be proud of that and one of the things that wasn't a restriction of Mr. Hamlin's was naming it Hamlin Park. Oh, he didn't say anything. No, like that? he did not say that. As far as I know, he may have had a private conversation with the village board at the time, uh, saying, "Hey, you, you, you know, you're gonna have to name it," but it was not in his official restriction. They, of course, <laughs> named it Hamlin Park. The only issue it causes today is a lot of folks, when they when we talk about Hamlin's farm, they're at opposite ends of the village. So some folks have made a mistake of thinking his farm, the the race track and all that, were where Hamlin Park is today, and actually. Mr. Hamlin owned Hamlin Park for about a day, if you think about it. Uh, so it had nothing to do with his, his farm on the other end of the village. So that does get confused quite a bit. Sure. Well, that's why we have you, Rob, to okay. help illuminate these situations <laughs> to you know, educate us. And so thank you again for stopping by. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. And we'll be right back with auditioning and when we were failures. Welcome back to this week's episode of Beyond the Front Page with the East Aurora Advertiser. Next, we will be speaking with Amanda, and she interviewed Carly this week. I did. Um, My dear friend Carly Weldy just accepted a position, a year-long position, traveling around the country with a children's theater, the Missoula Children's Theater Company. And this is really exciting for Carly. She went to college. uh, She went to Niagara University for a theater performance with a minor in general business. And her end goal is to become a director or work for a children's theater in the future. Does she have a crew traveling along with her? Yes, she has a partner. So she gets a Ford F-150 with all the sets and costumes in it for Robin Hood, which is the show that she's doing. And then her partner, her name is Anastasia. They drive around on a Sunday, they get to a town. They work with the kids Monday through Friday, put the show up Friday night, and then they travel the weekend. Oh, so they're bringing kids into the performance. Right. The kids sign up in the town. The pair directing, Carly and Anastasia, they will, one of them will direct and one of them will help perform in the show and then they'll go on and off for a year. Oh my gosh. Such a long time. That sounds like so much fun. What a great way to travel the country. Just have a pickup truck, drive around and... Be like, hey, kids, do you want to come and perform on stage? (laughs) Well, she was saying that theater is so important to her and especially to children because it teaches them uh, communication. Etiquette is huge in theater. It teaches you how to grow. And and one of her favorite things about theater is how it teaches us about humanity and keeps us grounded. And I agree. I'm a big fan of musical theater. I've been in musicals and plays in the past. You personally, what's it about being on stage in front of people that you enjoy? I'm not a very good public speaker, but I like getting into character. I really like stories, obviously, as a writer and a big reader like you, Chris. Um, And so being able to portray something and make the audience feel something while not being me but being someone else is kind of interesting. We did uh, Midsummer Jersey, so it's a Midsummer Night's Dream, but with set in New Jersey. (laughs) And so I had this huge hair and like this leopard print dress, and I played Helene, uh, her name was 
Helena or whatever it is, but one of the two lovers. And I had this big monologue about how this guy doesn't love me and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, you had the Jersey accent, yes, too. Yes, exactly. Give us, a, give us a little butt. Oh, no, no. 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 <laughs> but that was so cool because I've never been to New Jersey. And at the time, it was more like method acting because I was kind of going through similar things. So being able to make those connections is what I really like about theater. So I really admire her and I look up to her a lot, especially when we were acting together in high school. She's a big influencer on how I grew as a performer and as a musician. Do you find it easier to be on stage in front of hundreds of people in character versus maybe um, if we gave you a speech to talk in front of uh, 50 people? Yeah, it's really, really bad, and it doesn't even make any sense. But because I have the lines memorized and I'm, like, not Amanda, I'm another person, it makes it easier to bear all, I guess, and be fully immersed in this character who is open to judgment in my portrayal of them rather than the people in the audience judging me personally for like how I speak or how I wrote the speech or whatnot. But what I really wanted to talk about was um, Carly is a very, very grateful person. Like she just continually expresses gratitude for everything in her life and one of the big quotes at the end of my article was her encouraging kids, especially those chasing their dreams or facing scrutiny for going to art school or performing schools, um, is to find joy in failing, in the journey of failing and being, and realizing that being uncomfortable is a part of growth and that you can't grow while still being comfortable. So I wanted to know if you guys are comfortable with sharing <laughs> when a time you failed in what you learned when you were my age or Carly's age. I'm 20 and she's 23, 24. You know, when I was around that age, I had quit smoking, and I had been a smoker for about five years, and the first time I tried, it didn't last very long. So in that sense, you could say I had failed because I started smoking again, and it didn't last too, too long. It was maybe just another week or two, but then once I had definitely committed, like, no, this time I'm going to do it. I'm not going to spend that $4 a day or whatever on a pack of cigarettes. I wanted to feel uncomfortable going through that nicotine withdrawal again you know I wanted to get past that next day again without a cigarette and move on so I think I needed to not do it correctly the first time in order to be better at it the second time so that's my story <laughs> next I mean I failed it was in sixth grade though so it doesn't really that's totally count. okay is it no it was the uh the sixth grade spelling bee in front of the entire school. I thought I had it. I thought I, no problem. And I came in second place because I spelled the word pajamas wrong. Oh, no. I, it still bothers me to this day. <laughs> That's bringing back another memory. In fourth grade, I was one of the last, maybe there were four of us still left in the spelling bee, and I spelled wrong. Oh. Wrong. Like, how do you spell wrong wrong? How do you spell I spelled wrong wrong. <laughs> did you forget the W? I spelled it W-O-R-N-G. How did you spell pajamas? I put two M's in there. Oh. Pajama. Like, like I you were thinking like jammies. I remember standing up there <laughs> thinking pajamas, pajamas, pajamas. And I stick that extra M in there in second place. So what did you learn from that? I learned to... Maybe that's why I'm a copy editor now. <laughs> You've caught a lot of mistakes, and if we look at some captions we've had in the past with names on people, it's uh, I'll probably glance over and be like, 
that William looks right. And you're like, Adam, there are four L's in this. Why did you miss this? I do like getting out my red pen a lot. Yeah, and that's what you need to be. You know, talking about spelling bees, I was remembering fourth grade character. That was the word I screwed up. And was there no H? I don't. Re- I can't remember. I just know it was uh, the Strikersville or Shell. It's in Strikersville, but I think it's the Sheldon Historical Museum. Mm-hmm. And like our class went there for one of those pioneer type of days mm-hmm. and they had a spelling bee and I just remember like standing around a room and people were, you know, that was one word that took out most of us. That wasn't a failure moment, I really thought. I just remembered that word. I'm sure you haven't failed it much, have you, Adam? No, it's uh, pretty <laughs> successful at most of the things I've tried. <laughs> Do it and it seems to work out, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to have the answer for him? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I guess though a thing coming to my mind is uh, it was the whole time applying for colleges. I think I was in high 80s students, so average, about there. And But to get into one of the schools, and so I just remember applying to get into there, and I was just throwing it out. I didn't have any plans what I was doing into college, so I was going in undecided anyway. And I remember not getting in. So I, I didn't really care, but I just remember thinking, oh, that stinks when you get that rejection letter. And I actually got into Buffalo State College. I'm actually really glad I was into that college. I think Buff State was just a great campus. It was smaller. It was right in the city. I got to explore Buffalo a lot. I thought I had a great culture. A lot of great classes when I was there and it really, it was a moment where it didn't get where I wanted necessarily. Got into another place and then so it was a chance to kind of explore on my own and get to know more people. Nothing with your bike riding or your longboarding or your rock climbing? Oh, those are just normal things. I mean, that's the cliche, you fall off your bike and get back. <laughs> I mean, literally my bike just broke the other day and I had to be like, alright, I gotta fix this. Amanda, how about you? When you heard Carly say that quote, My parents have always been really good, especially my mom, in teaching me that uh, when one door closes, another door opens. So I've never really, I've been fortunate enough that I haven't failed so big that I've seen it as a complete failure or as something that I can't turn around or spin into something positive. Yeah, I think Carly had some great words. It was a great story. It's Mm -hmm. in uh, last week's edition of the newspaper. So check it out. And we have it online. We're going to move on, though, to... You've probably seen it. Shelly's very happy about it. Uh, the bridges. The bridges are done. They are finishing up as we are recording right now. Yay! Yay, Stora. Good for you. Uh, they look great. They're all nice and green, and the lettering is up, and hopefully everybody's happy. I think it looks great. It's weird seeing them so clean, yeah. and they, they really do stand out um, compared to the rest of the, the sides of the bridge where mm-hmm. it's still that concrete and kind of dirty but tangled mess um yes and that's another thing i think you wanted to highlight this week shell the railways management and non-management of the property it owns right so you know i've spoken with a few business owners whose businesses border the railways property and the embankment over the past week and it seems like for years the railway has been turning its eye um, on these bridges and just letting them go peely and, and letting them get filled up with graffiti. It's really the municipal's, municipality's responsibility if they want to cover the graffiti so we don't have offensive words up there in the middle of town. Why is that? Why won't the railway do anything? You talked to the railway company that owns this line and what was their reason? I did. So their reasoning with the bridges is that the railway line that runs through East Aurora is called the Buffalo and Pittsburgh Railway Line and it's about 729 miles and the spokesperson that i spoke with said that every mile and a half on average there is a bridge 
So it's just not economically feasible for them to paint all of the bridges all the time, especially when they are so prone to being graffitied. And he said the focus for them is just structural integrity. Exactly. And paint doesn't have anything to do with the structural and integrity of the bridge. So therefore, they just don't paint it. And it's a practice that they gave up probably about 50 years ago. What were some of the businesses saying on how the, the railway just doesn't do anything? You know, the, the businesses weren't so much having a problem with the looks of the bridges. They were more having a problem with the land on the embankment that they are bordering up to. So Pat Carrington, um, who owns Niagara Lumber, had an incident that just happened this past winter where a tree from the railway's property fell on a car that was parked in his parking lot. And his whole question was, who's responsible? Is the railway responsible because it was their tree? Or am I responsible because the incident happened in my parking lot and now it fell on somebody else's car? So he did take care of the tree. Um, he had called up his insurance company who said it was really nobody's responsibility. One of those act of God answers that you get sometimes from your insurance company. And the person who had parked there was really not supposed to be parked there. It was an employee at a neighboring business. Um, using his parking lot without his permission. So I think he again sent out a warning to other businesses just saying, please don't park in my parking lot. And he moved on. But it just goes into question, you know, who's really responsible. Now, when I spoke to Consuela Neff, who owns Raleigh Street Station, she had said that the railway has always been totally unresponsive to her requests because she had to go to the railway to get permission to add on 10 years ago when she expanded her restaurant in the back and they never responded to her so she added on anyway. So Dennis Dolling, he um, and Consuela, they have both mentioned that they are the ones to clean up and take care of things. They've got a fence there, they kind of are just doing things and and I think they they were looking for rail permission, like they want to make sure they're doing things right but they're not hearing anything. Right, because it technically is trespassing mm -hmm. but somebody's got to take care of it and Consuela said over the years she has spent thousands of dollars cleaning up that embankment she continues to spend money but she does it because she doesn't want her customers looking at the mess that would be on the embankment if she didn't do it and didn't the spokesperson for the railway say that it is trespassing if they go on there yes and he wanted me to remind readers that they should never be too close to the tracks a train could come at any time from either direction and if you do go onto the railway's property it is trespassing and that's fair you know, going on the tracks here, that's a different topic. I think these people are looking at, um, you know, the trees falling down, the garbage that accumulates from people just going by and throwing things. It'd be nice to see the railways take some effort and responsibility. That tree coming mm -hmm. down, though, if it were a tree on my property that fell on a car, I would be responsible. So mm -hmm. why is the railway not responsible? Probably helps when you have a couple billion dollars and you just ignore people. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, when you call the railway to try to get a response, you're sent in so many different directions and you're put on hold and, and you just, it, there's not a lot of consistency. There's not that one go-to person. And the Pittsburgh-Buffalo railway line is owned by another railway line, which is based out of Connecticut, and that's a multi-continental company. So it's it's really hard to kind of make your way up to the top to get an answer. They probably don't even know East Aurora exists. Exactly. It's a shame because now, you know, with the bridges, it was very nice these private businesses stepped up to paint it, but it would have been nice if that those resources could have been directed elsewhere in the community. Well, uh, they look good. Yeah. Yeah. So good work to the group organizing that and getting that painted. Anything else going on, guys? I just want to get home to my book. All right. We'll let you go read. <laughs> okay. So in the meantime. Do good. Be well. Bye.